The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. sure that you know, unless you're brand new here, that my usual habit in expository preaching is to follow books of Scripture, but I told you last week as we completed the letters of Peter that I was going into a topical series that would occupy us, in my intent, that it would occupy us until about early December before we turn towards Christmas subjects, and that is about 14 messages that I want to undertake on the subject of prayer. I've given the series the title of God-Centered Prayer, and I think I'll try at least to make it clear what that qualifier, God-centered, means when applied to the subject of prayer in today's message. Of course, in a topical series, I have freedom to go all over the place and will go to many different books. But today, looking at the book of Acts for a particularly memorable and notable prayer made by the early apostles Peter and John. Let me just quickly paint a sketch of context here. This is after the day of Pentecost when we're told Peter preached and the Holy Spirit came in power and 3,000 people were converted to Christ. And then an indefinite period goes forward, told about at the end of Acts 2, in which the church was growing and living together. We're not told exactly how long it was, but chapter 3 notes Peter speaking again and the healing, a great healing of a lame beggar. And then chapter 4 has Peter and John speaking in defense to the Jerusalem authorities, the religious authorities who were challenging, who are you people? What are you doing? Where are you getting the authority to heal people and do these kinds of things? We're in charge here was the message and and you're not to be doing all this. And uh, Peter and John told them that it was by the power of God in the name of Jesus that they spoke. And we find there in about midway through chapter 4 that they didn't know what to do with them, so they put them in jail, let them uh, molder in jail at least overnight. But got them out again, didn't know what to say except to threaten them and say, don't speak in this name anymore. Don't do this. Verse 21, they threatened them, finding no way to punish them because the people were all praising God for what had happened. That's when I pick up here at verse 23 and ask you to listen to this part of God's holy word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard it, the people lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod 
and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, as we embark on considering this great subject of prayer, would you please take our minds away from thinking of it as an academic exercise? Touch our hearts to come to you anew and see your greatness as we bow before you in prayer. For Jesus' sake, amen. When many Christians hear that somebody is going to speak to them on the subject of prayer, perhaps a main thought is, well, good, maybe this expert on prayer can teach me better prayer techniques so that in my fumbling and stumbling and inconsistent prayer life, I will do better and I will get more answers to whatever I'm asking God for. I will first of all disavow being an expert in prayer. I'm a fellow struggler with you, and I mean that sincerely. And I further disavow that I'm here to teach you prayer techniques or to get prayer to work for you, to produce practical results somehow that are better than what you've been seeing in your life. One of the great passages on this subject in all of classic literature is Mark Twain's little dialogue given by Huckleberry Finn in the novel by that name. You know, of course, that Twain was quite a skeptic about evangelical Christianity, and he puts his skepticism in Huckleberry's voice. Listen to this delicious passage that the boy theologian is talking about his own education, so to speak, in the subject of prayer. You may remember he had had a widow, Miss Watson, uh, come and try to give him training, social training and religious training, and here's what Huck has to say. Ms. Watson, why, she took me in the closet and prayed for me, but nothing ever came of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get it, but it just weren't so. Once I got me a fish line, but no hooks. So I started praying for them hooks three or four times. I just couldn't get it to work. So I asked Ms. Watson, would she put in a word with the Lord about them fish hooks? And she told me I was a fool. So I set myself down in the woods and had a long think. And I says to myself, if a body can get anything he prays for, why don't Deacon Wynn get back the money that he lost in the stock market? Why don't the widow get her silver snuff box back that was stole from her? Nope, I says to myself, there just ain't nothing to this prayer business. No way. Well, that's humorous, the naivete of Huck in his theology of prayer. But honestly, I think his views are not too far apart from where many people are in thinking about prayer. It just doesn't seem to work. It just doesn't seem to produce the results that I expect it ought to. And yet prayer is of the very essence of Christian belief. All our communication with God is founded in some kind of prayer. 
And in fact, Christians aren't the only ones who pray. Muslims pray five times a day by rote. Jewish people pray. The great religions of the world are basically have some form of prayer. We teach people through this church in English as a second language, ESL we call it. I suggest maybe we're talking now for a number of weeks about PSL, prayer as our second language, a language we hardly think about, and yet we're frustrated about it. We're, we're not, we don't consider ourselves fully fluent in this language. And we wonder, how can I do better? Well, I'm going to tell you my emphasis as we start with this subject today, and, and I'll stay with this emphasis in other weeks to come, is not so much about the how that we pray or the words that we use. It's about the God we pray to. Because I believe very sincerely that most of the problems we have with prayer are about a misunderstanding of the God whom we pray to. One author I was reading just the other week put it very memorably. He said, our concerns should not be so great about the how-to of prayer as about the who-to. That's where I'm concentrating today as we begin to think about this. Who do we pray to? Are we really praying to the biblical God, to the God whose character is displayed in his word? or to some idea of God, some imagination or whim about God that is really of our own personal devising, and therefore we're not that far off from Huck Finn in our naive thoughts about what prayer is. Well, here in Acts 4, we have a wonderful New Testament prayer, a premier prayer by the early church. You need to remember that this is very early in the life of the church, just a matter of Either weeks or months, we're not exactly sure, from the day of Pentecost and the real beginning, the blossoming and growth of the church. Peter and John are still neophyte leaders of the church when they led in this kind of a prayer. And these are the same men who heard Jesus, their master, pray when they walked about with him for a couple of years' time, and and they were overwhelmed at how he prayed. It was so much different than them. They said, Lord, will you please teach us to pray like you do? And, of course, he did teach them, and we assume they learned some things, and now the Holy Spirit was poured out through them and was certainly the, the new factor in their being able to pray more eloquently. But here they are praying, following a time of stress and persecution, a prayer that literally shook their own society and their own little world. I'm going to look... First today, at the, at the main time I'll spend is on the concept of God behind this prayer. Secondly, a little bit about the actual requests that were made. And thirdly, about the consequence of the prayer as a whole. The main part of this prayer is what we call the invocation, the calling upon God in verses 24 through 28 approximately that show their utter respect and humility before the divine sovereignty of God whom they approached. That was the foundation of this prayer. Here they had been rudely arrested, jailed without a real charge, threatened when they were let go that they should stop doing what they were doing, and then returned to their friends to regroup and say, well, what just happened and where do we go from here? Now, if you could imagine yourself and being maybe one of those apostles or one in there 
apostolic group that came together to hear them and that they told what had gone on, you would say, well, what are the alternatives that they could do now? You know, stiff, uh, high-minded authority had told them, don't do what you're doing or there'll be consequences. Well, one alternative is they could have obeyed the authority and not preached about Christ anymore. Or maybe just moved out away from Jerusalem and took their ministry elsewhere. Or maybe they could have uh, done what Presbyterians love to do at the highest levels of our denomination. They could have appointed a blue ribbon panel to study the problem and take a year to write a report and bring the report back. But what they did instead was to instinctively turn to prayer. And you have to notice the entire lack in this prayer of them pouring out any kind of trembling fears that they very naturally might have had. I could have imagined Peter perhaps praying, Oh, Lord, uh, you allowed us to get into a big jam here. We were just obeying what we thought Jesus told us to do. Do you realize we were nearly killed here? We could have been jailed for a long time. We do thank you, Lord, for your protection, but would you please stop any such events from happening again? They didn't say any of that, did they? What they did was lift their voices in one accord to God. And it came out in an amazing statement. Sovereign Lord, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-controlling God, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea. You spoke by your servant David, and the powers of men did what you decided beforehand would happen. You hear that? They prayed to one who made it all, who spoke about it, and who still controlled it and determined. The creator, the revealer, the ruler. There's an unusual Greek word used here in this sentence in which the, the adjective describing God is the despota. Despot. Do you know that word? It's, it's not actually a happy word in English. It describes a tyrannical Dictator, basically, somebody with absolute power who probably is run amok with that power. If you need an example, he lives in North Korea. Uh, a despot, somebody who has no restraints upon him, who can do whatever he wants, although here, of course, it's used benevolently of God, who is not, I'm not comparing God, please, to the ruler of North Korea, just the opposite. God is the chief executive the Supreme Court chairman, the head of the legislature, all wrapped in one. We in our system of government and our Constitution have no despot. In fact, if there was a goal of our Constitution, it was to prevent the possibility of there ever being a despot. Because even the president has de definite, significant checks upon his powers. He doesn't have unlimited powers. But here is a confession that God is the one of unlimited powers, unlimited sovereignty. We pray to the highest king whose throne is high and exalted. The same God who spoke in Isaiah 46, verse 10, and said, I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. My purpose will stand. I will do all that I pledge to do. The question is whether we pray to this God or not. Do we really pray to a God who is always totally 
sovereign, not sometimes sovereign, not sovereign on Sunday mornings, but taking a break on Thursdays, do we pray to the always all-sovereign God? Is this the God you pray to? Or is your problem that your prayer that you think is so ineffectual, your prayer life, is really rooted in a concept of God that is much more of your own devising? People betray this, you know, all the time when they say, well, my idea of God is, and I want to say, stop right there. Would you repeat that again? My idea of God is, I say, stop right there. Do you understand what you just said that's very significant? You are building everything upon your idea of God, an idea that you have devised from your own thoughts, your own ideas of what would be fair or just or something, not necessarily built upon Scripture. Look at how their idea of God was built. First on the fact that he was creator, says verse 24. He built this universe. He defined it and, and made all the intricacies and beauties of it that we know. The changing of the seasons in such a regular way and all the things about it come from him. He's also the God who has spoken, say, verses 25 and 26. We know the Bible is his word. He spoke in it. He revealed himself. He gave us all kinds of wisdom in different forms, all the way from Proverbs and Psalms to Gospels and letters, books of history. He's not a God who is silent. I always thought that how opposite you know, the statues of Buddha, if you've ever studied Buddhism, the, the virtue of Buddha is that he doesn't speak. <laughs> Why do you want a God that doesn't speak? Buddha is no God. He never was. He never will be. We have a God who speaks, who makes himself known by the Holy Spirit. He gave us the 66 books of Scripture, and he speaks through those books today by his Holy Spirit. And then, too, he is the God who has shown himself in the past. They refer here to God's revelation. Right away, they're raising and comparing their situation to what is revealed in Psalm 2, that David wrote that great psalm. If you've never read Psalm 2, go back and look at it. It's a psalm that tells about a universal problem, that the kings and rulers of the earth rise up and vaunt their power and shake their fist against God. And, and it basically, I'm paraphrasing, but it says God sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs at the premier of, South, of North Korea. What a joke the man is to the powers of God. What a joke any little politician is before God who think if it's someone who thinks he's going to change the course of history or be the master determiner of human affairs. God laughs. There's no one who can stand in his presence. And that is cited right here. The Gentiles raged, the peoples plotted in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. God predicted that would happen way back in Psalm 2, so it was no surprise when they did exactly that against God's anointed, Jesus Christ, when he came in his era of time. So the apostles here are praying on the basis of God the creator, God the revealer, God the controller of all things. I would think you and I would be attracted to the God who is able to laugh at those who oppose him. 
with proper facts about God from Scripture filling your mind, you, you know, you'll be spared so much wasted time in prayer. You'll not be asking God for a lot of foolish things, saying, God, oh, I, I know that I need this more than anything else. I just need this. Please give me this. Well, it may well be that you don't need that, and receiving that would be the worst thing that could happen to you. If you knew more about God, you wouldn't ask him for it. You know, we know what a supermarket has to offer when we go to shop. And of course, these days, even supermarkets sell just about everything. You can buy life insurance in supermarkets and I don't know what all. But basically, you don't go to a supermarket if you need auto parts, right? Don't go to God for foolish things that he has no desire to grant you. If you know him, you would have some idea what is appropriate to approach him with. This God who doesn't tremble at the same things you tremble at, who hasn't lost control just because it seems like maybe you've control, lost control. This God who does not change his mind on Thursday from what he made known on Sunday. He's not fickle. He's not changeable. He's a solid rock. Our call to worship said today he's a rock on which to stand. The very sovereign unchangeableness of God is the foundation for approaching him in prayer. Well, then, let's turn for a minute then and ask a a little bit about the requests that were asked for here. You notice, of course, that the apostles didn't go to request right away. That's where we go right away. I would guesstimate that 80, 90 percent of all prayer by Christians is starts with requests and basically ends with the requests. Oh God, here I am today. I'm sparing five minutes for you uh, just before I rush out to work. Uh, You know what I need. Here's the list for today. Success in my business dealings with the Smith account and and safekeeping for my daughter as she's driving to college and, and one, two, three, four. Okay, those are the requests, God. That's all I've got time for. Bye now. I'm trusting you. Is the God of the laundry list the only God you know? Did you ever conceive of the idea that you would pray for 10 minutes straight or even longer doing nothing but praising God, adoring God, thanking God? I draw a line between praising and adoring, by the way. To me, praising means recognizing things he has done for you, recognizing the past and his goodness in the past, whereas adoring God is praising his character, who he is, who the Scripture says he is in Christ and how he has given us salvation. Well, look at the requests that are here. After the adoring, after the praising, they do make requests, and they say, Lord, number one, consider these threats that have been made. Let's look at these threats and see if we can see them the way you see them. And enable your servants to speak your word. There's another request, but it's not a self-centered one. It's not gimme, gimme. It's help us to speak your word faithfully with boldness. And then another one, stretch out your hand to heal many, because part of this was all about a a healing of a lame man that Peter had had, uh, been allowed to... to, uh, request from God, and it was granted to heal, to make Christ known, to perform wonders in the name of Christ. How much is that like our requests? Not very much. Our requests are usually, God, I need you to benefit me in some way. If I could have put the requests I think I would have had in this experience, I might have said, God, 
make this painful experience go away so it never happens again. They didn't ask that. In fact, they, quite the opposite, they said, Lord, help us to be more bold in doing the very things that got us into this trouble. So in other words, we're ready for this to happen again, if that's your will, God. We're glad for the privilege to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Let it happen more, if that's what you want. I'd ask you for instruction to turn to a passage I didn't read. You might, I might advise you to turn to it. Find Isaiah in your Bible, Isaiah 37 for a minute. Isaiah 37, verses 14 and following, tells a little historical incident in the midst of Isaiah's life and ministry. I just call this alongside as a similar occasion of prayer to what we see in Acts 4. Isaiah 37, 14. Here's King Hezekiah, one of the real godly kings of the Old Testament. Hezekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem, was under attack by an Assyrian with a great name. I always always loved the name, Sennacherib. I don't know why. I just thought if you were going to be an enemy of God, Sennacherib was a good name to have. And uh, here came this Assyrian, incredibly haughty, with a great army behind him that was just rolled in like locusts in a field of wheat, and took down anybody who opposed them. So Sennacherib sent a letter. He had designs on overtaking Jerusalem and Judah. He sent a letter to Hezekiah and basically said, you don't have a chance. You can't possibly stand against me. No nation and no other nation's God has ever stood against me. Your God isn't going to make any difference to you. Well, what did righteous King Hezekiah do? Did he go to the temple and cry and whine and say, oh, God, we're about to die. No. It says he went to the temple, and he took the letter, and he spread the letter out before the Lord, and he prayed. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. And in effect, he said, now listen to the words this man Sennacherib has sent as an insult to the living God. And the king of Judah concluded his prayer in verse 20 of Isaiah 37. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from the hand of Sennacherib so all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. What was Hezekiah pleading here? He was pleading for the honor and the greatness and the glory which he knew belonged to God. And this little midget Sennacherib had dared to insult God. Oh God, let your greatness be vaunted and shown to this foolish man. If you're following, if you have the text open, you see what happened. It it happened so quietly. One of the quietest things, but yet one of the most stunning things God ever did in the Old Testament. We're told that the next morning when the sun rose and the Assyrians were arising from their encampment, 185,000 Assyrians were dead in their tents. Take that in. How does that happen? But by the mighty hand of God who will not be insulted by any midget dictator on earth. Our master request has to be like that of Hezekiah, like that of Peter and John, in these prayers for the glory and the honor of God's great name before anything else.
And so we see, thirdly, the consequences of this God-centered prayer. After they prayed, it says, Acts 4.31, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly, the exact thing they had prayed for. God, help us speak your Word boldly. God-centered prayer shakes the world. It always will in one manner or another. Now, somebody could say, oh, well, you know, the apostles were just in an emotional state here, and they got everybody worked up, and somebody thought that the ground shook when they prayed. No, somebody didn't think the ground shook. The ground shook. A sign from heaven that God approved this daring prayer that was for his honor. He showed them, I am the God who shakes the earth. If you're going to pray, start out by knowing who the real mover and shaker is to whom prayer must be addressed. In Hebrews 12, there's a great passage, Hebrews 12, 26, it says, once more, this is the Lord speaking through the author, once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. This means the removing of what can be shaken so what cannot be shaken may remain and we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's exactly describing what we've just been talking about the last few weeks in Second Peter. When Christ comes, God is going to shake the earth. And that which cannot stand shaking is going to disappear. And that which cannot be shaken is going to stand and be renewed. Do we dare pray to the God who is the mover and the shaker in these times of America when we have catastrophes and political crises and great dangers and rank immorality on our television sets that you can't even watch the commercials, let alone the programs. Do we dare pray that God would shake the things that can be shaken, that they would be removed, and that he would let stand and show forth the things that cannot be shaken, our eternal inheritance in Christ? Do we pray to this God? You might say, well, the answer didn't come instantly, but let me tell you the answer to this prayer in Acts 4. It was just a few decades in A.D. 70 that all of Jerusalem and its temple and the hierarchy that functioned in that temple, the very people or the successors of the people who threatened Peter and John and said, you can't do this, we're in charge here, we'll tell you what to do, those very people and that entire temple institution was jarred from its foundations by the armies of Rome under Titus. And they even pulled the foundation stones of the temple away so that what you can only find there now, the wailing wall that many of you have visited, is part of the basement wall. That's all that was left. What could be shaken was shaken. And God took away that authority that dared speak against him and the honor of his gospel in Christ. When God hears prayer that puts his character, his honor, first and foremost above everything, the all-sovereign one will shake up the status quo. The man who thinks he can lob missiles at Denver and Chicago and New York City, God will shake. I don't know how. I'm not a prophet. But you have not to fear from such a man. We, the people of Christ, in this day and hour, need a teeth-jattling, rattling jolt of revival. 
from the God who shakes the heavens and the earth to embolden our witness, to wake up our spiritual dullness, to cause us to passionately praise him. Can we and will we pray, O Lord, stretch out your hand today to heal and save in power in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Let's know who we're praying to before anything else. And so, our Father, we ask you, call us to prayer. Call us not to a mere interest in sermons on a topic that we can devise that somehow we'll do better if we hear these sermons. Humble us and put us low when we see what you do, when your honor is the greatest thing that a people desires. Teach us to pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.